0: Well, go ahead and keep your Bibles out and open there in Luke 2 as we dive right into looking at this passage. And I want you to think about news news alerts that you've received in your life. And we've all experienced it. Maybe it's at night, it's the end of the day, you're just doing whatever you normally do. And all of a sudden, your phone starts making this hideous, screeching sound that gets your attention, right? And you look and there's an alert and usually when you think about those alerts, it's saying something like, hey, there's somebody missing, look out for a car that looks like this. Or and maybe if you were in Hawaii in January 2018, you got an alert saying, hey, there's a missile inbound, take shelter immediately. Or maybe it's just a weather app on your phone telling you, hey, it's going to be icy on the roads, something. But pretty much always when I've gotten those alerts on my phone, I've never turned to somebody else and say, whoa, this is awesome. Check this out. Because most of the breaking news in our world isn't good news. Usually, breaking news is an interruption of your life to tell you about another bad thing that has happened in our world. But there was one specific time where there were some people at night doing their thing, minding their own business, when there was an alert An alert that caught their attention, an alert that made them afraid, except this time it was good news. And that's what we want to reflect on this morning. And again, this may seem like a familiar story to us, but isn't it good to stop in a world so full of bad news and take some time to think about the good news And even we want to do something a little bit differently this morning as we look at Luke 2, 1 through 20. Lots of times at Christmas, uh, you know, everyone's familiar with the story. So what pastors like myself try to do is we, we, we pick one specific thing and we try to get really deep into that thing and maybe learn something we haven't learned before or you see something that you haven't thought about before. But especially with Christmas falling on a Sunday this year, we wanted to do a little more of just what we do every Sunday where we open up God's Word to a passage and we ask, what does this passage mean? What is God saying in his word in these verses? And what does it mean for us? And in Luke 2 here, 1 through 20, we're, we're reading the most common Christmas account here. And let's look at it together. And even if you look at the structure of this passage, the first seven verses, I think, are really going to lead us to the highlight of the passage there in the angelic announcement to the shepherds. And then verses 15 through 20 will kind of lead out of that announcement into the response. So we'll see the build up, kind of the big climactic breaking news moment, and then look at the responses to that moment. So as you look at those first seven verses, you'll notice that they're pretty matter of fact. They they go to Bethlehem and she gives birth. And again, lots of times at Christmas, we're, we're tempted to fixate and to go really deep on certain issues, so much so to the point where sometimes we maybe even start going off on tangents that weren't even meant in the scripture. For instance, there was no room for them in the inn. Well, Uh, that ends back then. Don't think of a hotel like today, probably in a world where there were travelers or or pilgrims or or people moving through different areas. This was an open area or shelter for travelers. But man, that poor innkeeper has probably had so many Christmas sermons (laughs) criticizing him. How'd you miss Christmas, innkeeper? I don't think that's the point of um, this passage. What is the point, especially of these verses? And, And one of the Things that you'll see when you read the passage is there's a couple names in this passage that are very important. In particular, two names that are names of very influential kings. First, Caesar Augustus in verse one. And then later, it speaks of another king, a king you're very familiar with if you know the Bible, King David. It talks about the city of David and it talks about Joseph being a descendant of David. Now, Caesar Augustus, he was the emperor of the Roman Empire at this time, and this was the golden age of the Roman Empire. He was uh, really the first Roman emperor to have the peace of the whole empire. Julius Caesar was murdered, and even Augustus Caesar, he has to fight this war with Mark Antony, a civil war, and now he has control, uh, and there is peace throughout the Roman Empire. And we see he gives this order, a decree, that the world should be registered, some kind of census in the world. And that order goes from him. It gets passed through this regional governor of Syria in verse 2. And it makes it all the way down to this man named Joseph, who is of the town of Nazareth, a town in the north of Israel, in the region we would know today as Galilee. But the effect of this order is that Joseph and Mary, well, they have to leave the town of Nazareth to go to David's ancestral home. And likely that was done because of this census, Uh, the, the way that it would be best to do it with the Jewish people was to go to your hometown and register there. So he has to go to his hometown, which it says because he's a descendant of David is the city of David and that is Bethlehem. And if you were with us last night, we know that even the people in this time knew the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. When the wise men came looking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The answer is clear. Uh, he's going to be in Bethlehem because Micah says in Micah 5.2, that's where it is going to happen. So in these verses, what we see is the most powerful man in the world at that time making a decree. And because of that decree, Joseph, this descendant of David, goes to the city of David so that the ultimate son of David will be born there. Uh, The decree of a king, God uses it to do exactly what he planned to do. Point number one this morning, trust a history orchestrating God. Trust a history orchestrating God. God is working everything together, and even here, specifically, to fulfill prophecy. Now, that's one of the reasons why you should trust the Bible, and that's a valid question. If you were to share your faith with somebody, if they were to ask you, well, okay, well, why should I trust what the Bible has to say? I try to encourage people, if you're over-intimidated to share your faith, and you think, well, I got to know the answer to every question. No, you don't. But why do you believe the Bible? That would be a good question to know an answer to. And one answer to that question will be, well, look at all of the fulfilled prophecy in this book. Look at all the time where God, before it happens, says, this is what's going to happen. And it happens exactly like he said. And one prophecy you could show them was, hey, look at Micah 5.2. It says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now look at the Christmas accounts. He's born in Bethlehem, just like it said. And more than one of the reasons why we should trust the Bible, this is one of the reasons why we should trust God. God is a God who does what he says. And that's shown in prophecy, that's also true of the providence and the promises of God. Or if you think about it, you, none of us can truly make promises. And you think, oh, no, I make promises. Well, yours at best have a very high level of probability. You may say, hey, I promise we're going to do this, and there is a 99.99% chance that it's going to happen. But you don't have the ability to make absolute guarantees in your promises because your heart could stop beating right now. Uh, you, You can't promise that you'll be alive by the end of the day to guarantee something that's going to happen tomorrow. God is the only one who can do that. God is the only one that can say, this is what I'm going to do. This is going to happen and guarantee that that is exactly what will happen. Our God is the God who says the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem and boom, it happens. And the Messiah is going to suffer and die for people's sins and boom, it happens. And the Messiah is going to rise again from the dead and boom, it happens. And the Messiah, he's going to come again and it is going to happen. And when we think of Jesus coming back a second time, we don't know when that will happen. But as we wait, we know that God is in control and he is orchestrating everything that is going on in the world for his good purposes. He always has been, and he will continue to work everything according to the counsel of his will. And we live in a pretty crazy world. It seems like it's out of control. And it's good for us to remember a couple of things, even though sometimes it does feel like that's getting worse. Well, it's always been crazy. Even go back to Psalm 2, the nation's rage. That was a long, long time ago that they were saying that. It may feel out of control to us, but God is in control. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't care about what goes on in the world. It doesn't mean we don't have responsibilities we are to fulfill in this world. But it means that we should not be anxious. We should not be afraid. We should not be worried because God still is exactly where he's always been and where he is always going to be. And that is on the throne, working everything that he has planned to come to pass. And we may be living in the middle of history, but we know the one who is writing history. We serve the God who can make the most powerful man in the world do exactly what he wants to do so that the exact thing that God says is gonna happen will happen. That's the God that we serve. But the text keeps moving. That just sets the the table. And again, the readers of the Bible would have understood these references to David and then it records the birth and, and that she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And as you consider the significance of that, you'll see, well, that's the sign that is going to be given. And that's why I think verses eight through 14 are really the highlight of the passage. And I don't mean that uh, in just, well, it's my favorite part of the passage. No, I think that God through Luke here is intentionally building things to that moment and even showing, Oh, this is what happened. So the sign given to the angels will be true, which we'll see here in a moment. So let's move into verse eight and it says in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, when you think of shepherds, uh, that's significant to some extent because, well, Abraham, David, pretty important Moses, uh, all important figures in the Old Testament, they were all shepherds. But in the time of Christ, uh, shepherds were also kind of an everyman. Uh, Shepherds were most likely poor and, and probably a group of shepherds out at night, these guys are probably a little bit rough around the edges, uh, but it is to them uh, that we see verse nine, an angel of the Lord appears. Uh, there's not some screeching phone with a news alert, but an angel appears. And it's not just the appearance of the angel. There's this glory of the Lord that shone around them and they were filled with great fear. The glory of the Lord speaks to really this visible, shining uh thing often referred to as the Shekinah glory, or you think of the Old Testament, this cloud that would even lead the people of Israel, right? This appears with the angel and the shepherds are now afraid, or as the old King James put it, they were sore afraid. And you would have been too if you were there. They had never seen anything like this. You've never seen anything like this. But all of a sudden, in what felt like an ordinary night to them, this is here and they are afraid. And then what happens follows a response. If you consider the stories of Luke 1, there's some angelic appearances there, and it follows a pattern of the appearance of the angel, a response of fear, a a reassurance, a divine message, and a sign. And we've seen the appearance, we've seen the fear, but if you keep going, you see the reassurance. The angel said to them, fear not, And then we see the divine message. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Right. There's the message and then there's the sign. This is going to be the sign. Go and and even I think what's the significance of Jesus being laid in the manger? It was part of the sign. You're not going to go find any other babies lying in a manger. This one is the Savior. This one is Christ the Lord. And he starts there by saying it's good news. Now that word is is the Greek word we get the word evangelize from. That's what the angel saying, I am evangelizing you. What does evangelism mean? It means to declare the good news. And that's what he's doing here. Hey, I'm declaring good news to you. And it says of great joy. The Greek word there for great is the word we get the English word mega from. Mega joy, huge joy, massive joy for all People, I think here, all the people he's referring specifically to the people of Israel, but we'll see even from Luke in the gospel of Acts, well, that message is going to go out to all the world and everyone can participate in this. And then he says, for unto you, speaking to the shepherds. And now, if you think about it, like I said, these shepherds are probably poor, every man, rough around the edges. Part of the idea here is, hey, if this savior is good enough for you guys, it's good enough for anybody. Unto you is born this day in the city of David. Again, that's important because of the prophetic uh, meaning there and the prediction that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. There is born to you a savior. That is the, the word that the angel uses to describe this baby that is born, a savior. Now that's interesting because in the gospels specifically, that's not actually a very common word for Jesus. There's only one other time that title of savior is used for him in the gospels. Used more in the epistles, but it's, it's rare in Jesus's ministry, but the concept is everywhere. Even think of the name Jesus itself. Matthew 1 tells us why he was given that name. You are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's why you should name him Jesus. And even the name Jesus, it's the same name as Joshua, and it literally means God is salvation. That's why you're to name him Jesus. His name even speaks to the fact that he is a savior to save us from our sins. Or Jesus, he would go on, he wouldn't use the term savior in the gospels, but he says in Luke 19.10, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. I'm here to save people from their sins. I'm here to save people from their lostness. A savior has been born. And then it goes on to say, he is, who is Christ the Lord. Now, Christ, as you know, is not Jesus's last name. It is a title. Christ is the Greek way to say the Hebrew word Messiah. The English way to translate that would be anointed one. And it's a title that's so connected with Jesus that it really kind of becomes his name. He is the Christ. He is the ultimate anointed one. And the anointed ones in that society would have been prophets, priests, or kings. And Jesus is the ultimate of all of those things. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is the Christ. And he is Christ the Lord. Lord usually was a term reserved for God as a sovereign deity and even in the period between the old testament and the new testament this title messiah lord was used to refer to the expected royal messiah that everyone was waiting for and so the angel arrives to announce hey good news the one who everyone is waiting for he's here now and go, verse 12, and you're going to find him. He gives him the sign, the baby in the swaddling claws lying in the manger. And that's not the end of the announcement. Because verse 3, suddenly there was an angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, now host is one of those words that if people understood what that meant at some point, people don't understand what that means today. Because when you think of host, you think of someone maybe dressed nice at like the front of a restaurant. No, the, the, the Greek word there literally means army. There's a multitude, thousands of angel soldiers all of a sudden appearing on the scene. If they weren't afraid before, well, now there's this whole angel army that is there. And they are saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This really tells us the intended result of the announcement. And it kind of breaks down in the highest there, glory to God in the highest. We'll sing this in a little bit. That's Gloria in excelsis Deo, right? Uh, The highest really is not so much speaking to the degree of glory. It's really speaking to where, I think of, of heaven. Hey, the angels are showing you Hey, in heaven Glory to God. We are giving God praise and honor and respect that he deserves for what he has done. Glory to God in heaven. That's gonna be the result of this in heaven. And on earth, the result is going to be peace. And I think this is a good translation here, uh, even peace among those with whom he is pleased. So it's not just this generic mushy-gushy Christmas peace on earth. It's very much peace among a specific group of people, those with whom God is pleased. That is the intended effect. Now, what what does peace mean? The Bible uses this word in two main ways. One is uh, peace among two parties, unity amongst uh, people that have been separated or, or there's no conflict, that there's peace between these two people. And it's also used in a sense of well-being. It's just kind of, I have a sense of, of peace and, and well-being. And I think both of these are intended. Hey, peace on earth because you will have peace with God. You have been reconciled. We sing that, God and sinner reconciled. There is now peace between these men with whom God is pleased and God and that factual peace between you and God will lead to an inner peace and well-being with you. So if you understand this good news, God's intended result, what Luke 2 is saying, you should have peace. Point number two this morning, find comfort in the promised savior. Find comfort in the promised Savior. And again, I think this is a good translation. It's not just, hey, peace for everybody. It's peace for a specific group of people. It's peace for the people with whom God is pleased. Well, who are those people? Well, from God's perspective, it's the people that God in his sovereignty has mercy on. But God's sovereignty does not in any way absolve us from our responsibility. Uh, From a human perspective, who are these people that God is is pleased with? Uh, The Bible makes clear it's the people that respond in faith to this message. Those that turn from their sin, repentance, and put their trust in this Savior, Christ the Lord. Would you like peace this Christmas? Peace first and foremost with God that, that leads to an inner peace? Well, the Bible is clear the, the ultimate way to do that is to turn from your sin and trust the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. And if you have never done that, it's no better time than Christmas to do that. If you know I don't have peace in my life, I know I'm still lost in my sin and I am still at odds with God. There's good news for you. A Savior was born to save you from that sin. Turn from it and trust in him. Unto you is born a Savior. And for those of you that, that have responded to, this, to the Savior, do you know this peace this Christmas? And I know this, the Christmas story, we do this every year. It's so familiar. But I want you to feel in a fresh way that sense of peace that you should have a comfort in your soul knowing that a savior was born. A savior has come and you can rejoice in that. And just think of it this way. Do you think the world could use some saving? I mean, good grief, absolutely, right? Well, don't ever forget you need saving just as bad, but you have it you have that savior. He has come. You have put your faith in him. There is joy in your peace to be had as you consider that you can be made right with God. You have been made right with God because of this savior that was born. And the discomfort that we feel still living in a broken world, that that's going to affect your peace negatively. We know, well, The rest of the salvation is coming. We're kind of in this weird moment between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ when the entire work of salvation will be completed in a realized way. He will be the king. There will be no more sin. We'll be saved from sin in an absolute sense where we won't even experience the presence of sin anymore. But that's coming. Romans 8 speaks of how we groan for that. Romans 8 verse 18 says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We're gonna experience some bad things in this world, but what's coming is even better than that. And it goes on to say, it's not just creation that groans, but we ourselves who have the first fruits, we've got the down payment of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we, wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for that work of redemption to be completed, but it is going to happen. Just like he said it would, or we think of how Jesus left his disciples in John. He tells them, no, in the world, you will have trouble, but I give you peace. in the world, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I want to encourage you with the peace of the Savior. Know that for yourself. Know that just even in this world, the Savior is coming back. He will make things right. We've tasted the first fruits of that in our salvation, but the rest of it is coming. And that should give us peace today. And so then as we get back to Luke, now we see, well, what was the response? If this was the the highlight, this announcement to the shepherds, Good news, great joy, a savior is born. Well, how do people respond to that? How should you and I respond to that? We see that in the end, it starts with faith and obedience. The angels went away into heaven and the shepherd said, let's go. Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And it says they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. You see that sign in all three sections here. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. Hey, you won't believe this, but we were out doing our shepherd thing in the field and an angel appeared to us. And it said that this baby is a savior. He is Christ the Lord. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. What I really want us to focus in on here is then in verses 19 and 20, the, the responses of Mary and the shepherds. Mary in verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen and, and as it had been told them. So you see Mary reflecting and you see the shepherds rejoicing. That's a great model for us. Point number three this Christmas morning reflect and rejoice in the good news of Christmas. Reflect and rejoice in the good news of Christmas. I love Mary's response here. She treasures what has happened and she ponders, she thinks about these things. Even the Greek word used here for Treasure, I mean, it's literally referring to something that is valuable that you put in a safe place so that it is ready when you need it. And if you think about even, you think of the idea of safe, some of you may have a safe in your home and you put important things that you want to be protected like jewelry or important documents or or firearms or whatever it may be in there. So, hey, I know these things are safe and ready when I need them or something maybe simpler than that, think about uh, your dishes, right? We've got little kids, so we've got dishes for our little kids and we put them down in the bottom cabinet because they're cheap, they're plastic. And if our youngest Watson gets in there and starts throwing them all around the kitchen, no harm, no foul, right? It's not gonna break, it's just plastic. And even if he somehow found a way to break it, it's very easy to just get another one, right? They're not special. Uh, Ladies, where do you keep your fine china? I I doubt you put it somewhere real low, especially if you've got kids around or grandkids around where where they could just get into it and start throwing it around the kitchen. You're not going to let that happen. Maybe some of you like me, you don't really, maybe us millennials in the room, fine china isn't as big of a thing, but I think of dishes that my wife and I uh, really cherish. I think of our, our mugs, right? Because most of them, we bought them special places. It's kind of our favorite souvenir. They're not too expensive, but they're memorable. You're going to use it, right? So we've got all of our mugs. We don't keep those down where the kids can get it. We put them up high. And even we put them out of the way so we can go and we can open up the cabinet and look and say, hmm, which mug do I want to drink deeply from today, right? Right? One of these mugs that reminds me of one of the vacations or trips that we've taken or or this one from our favorite coffee shop in Israel or, or maybe I want my plants and pillars mug so I can pray for our high school ministry or my taking ground mug so I can pray for our building project as a church, right? So many options to choose from, treasured and kept safe there in the cabinet. Well, that's what you need to do with the goodness of God and his promises. You need to make sure that you don't just roll your eyes through the Christmas story for another year. No, you need to know this. This is good news of great joy for all people, for you, a savior has been born. The promised one has come and this is good for you and you need to treasure that. You need to ponder that. You need to put that somewhere safe in your heart because you're gonna need it. Because this week, this year, there's going to be problems. There's going to be trials. There's going to be temptations. And you need to go open up the cabinet of all the good things that you've seen God do and say, "Mm, which mug do I want to drink the goodness and glory of God from today? And you need to reflect and ponder on all the things that you've seen God do. And some of those things should be biblical things. That's why the Bible is here. It is written for our encouragement. One of those things when you're in a hard situation this week should be, hey, I remember the time that a savior was born in Bethlehem, just like God said he would. And that's good news of great joy. This is a hard situation, but I have peace because I know the savior. Or some of those things might not just be biblical things. It can be personal things. As you remember, hey, here's the time when God was good to me. Here was the time I was in a trial, but God delivered me from it. Or, hey, this situation seems hard, but I've seen times where God's timing in the past has been perfect. And you think of, oh, well, there was this one time I was preaching and I got sick in the middle of it, but it was at the perfect time. Only God could have done that. And you remember that next time you're in a bind, hey, God's been good in the past. He's always gonna be good. I'm treasuring up all of those things, putting them in a safe place in my heart and mind so I don't forget them. And so when I need them, they're ready. They're ready for me to drink deeply from. And this internal reflection, thinking of all that God has done, thinking of what God did at Christmas thinking of all that God has done for you, the internal reflection should lead to outward rejoicing. And again, that's what you see more from the shepherds. They returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Will you leave this place today and go back to wherever you're going, rejoicing and praising God for what you have seen and heard? I want to encourage you, make sure you take time today to rejoice. Don't just go home from here and get lost in presents or food. Even as you do those things, remember, what are we celebrating? What are we doing? Even parents, take time with your kids as you open gifts to remind them of the gift of Jesus Christ. As you gather with family to enjoy a feast today, set aside time to praise God for the reason why you are feasting. Rejoice. There's a news alert today and it's good. There is a Savior. He is Christ the Lord. Rejoice in it. Meditate on it. Treasure it and let the peace that should come from that settle in your life today. And I hope you rejoice as you leave and as you go home. We wanna rejoice a little bit more together as a church family. So let me pray and we can continue rejoicing in song over the birth of our savior. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you that a savior was born. We thank you that the Messiah came just like you said he would, just where you said he would, just how you said he would. And he did all the things that you said he would. And God, you will always do the things you say you'll do. So God, please help us to treasure up these things in our heart that we would leave here today crying out glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Lord, we want to praise you this morning. And God, I pray that you would help us just with the things we reflect on this Christmas, that we would take them with us into this next week and into this next year as we treasure them up in our heart, that we would never forget your goodness, that we would never forget your deliverance, that we would praise you always for these things. And we pray this now in Jesus' name, amen.